and welcome to 13, the bi-weekly podcast where Colgate University community members answer 13 questions about their work. I'm your host, Daniel DeVries, and today I have the pleasure of welcoming back to the podcast Colgate's 17th president, Brian W. Casey. President Casey earned a Bachelor of Arts in Philosophy and Economics at the University of Notre Dame and then went on to earn a law degree from Stanford University Law School. He practiced law in New York City and London before deciding to leave the world of law to attend Harvard University, where he earned his Ph.D. in the history of American civilization. Casey worked at Brown and Harvard before becoming DePaul University's 19th president in 2008, a position he held for eight years before joining Colgate on July 1st, 2016. In just five years, President Casey has led Colgate to even greater national prominence, both for its commitment to an outstanding liberal arts education and also for the support that the university provides for its students. In the two years since President Casey last joined the podcast, Colgate has worked to set into motion a number of new initiatives and investments related to the university's third century plan during a pandemic. We'll talk about all of that and more today on this episode of 13. So, President Casey, welcome back to the podcast. Glad to be here, Daniel. A lot has happened since we last spoke. Really, it was just a few months after the last podcast recording that the world turned upside down and our semester on campus was cut short. Colleges tend to be places where folks plan out things well in advance, but this was a situation where long-term planning was nearly impossible. What were the last two years like as a college president? Uh, um, what were the last two years like as a college president? Um, it was everything. It was exhausting. It was um, scary. Uh, you know, I, 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 you really want to have you have to emphasize scary. I mean, we're 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 hopefully beginning to look back on this, but just it was scary and uh, it was hard. I you, there's just no way to say it wasn't anything but hard. I keep hearing. Other college presidents talk about the gift of resilience and everything we gained by this. And I just haven't gone there. I'm like, no, it was hard. <laughs> um, but what was it like? Um, you know, in some ways, it was actually very focusing. Um, I, 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 I think the most important moment that happened during the pandemic was completely invisible to all Colgate alumni. So maybe I can talk about this, which was, you know, we formed a task force about how to open the campus. We had another task force about how are we going to teach in this environment? And the task force on reopening the campus, and I, I was with them a lot, um, and they were doing the same thing that every other college was doing. Should we open? Should we close? Should we open? Should we should close. And that was the summer of 2020. That was the binary everyone was facing. And someone in that group, I think I recall who it is, but I, but I, I don't want to attribute to one person because it seemed like this moment emerged where someone said, we're asking the wrong question. The question isn't should we open or not. The question is, because we are a liberal arts college where we learn together in person, the question is, how do we do that? And it, it was just so interesting. All of a sudden, it became that was the question. Mm. And I cannot tell you how clarifying that question became, which is like, oh, you're right. We belong together on this hill, teaching and learning together. How do we do that? And once that became the question, well, it's like, okay, we have to feed everybody. We have to, we have to quarantine everybody. We have to, we have to do all this stuff to bring people back in the middle of a pandemic before a vaccine. And so, you know, I, I, this, it'll, this will sound so like a case study, but once you, once you know your mission and our mission is we teach in person together, uh, everything became clear. So 
although it was hard and it was scary and it was ever-changing, it was incredibly clarifying because mm. it was just, what's our mission? How do we get back to it? What's our mission? How do we get back to it? And, uh, and we did. We did it. So what was it like? It was um, exhausting, thrilling, and um, affirming of what we do. Mm. Mm. It's interesting. I hadn't thought about it like that because it's almost a moment where you have an entire campus focused on this one thing, right? It's it's, it's just fascinating. I, it, when, when in history, right? I mean, there are major milestones in history where that happens, but it's rare. Yeah, you know, it's interesting. I, I am a historian by training. Um, my, I, the, it's always so funny. Harvard calls its American Studies program the PhD in the history of American civilization, which is remarkably pretentious. Um, but it's basically American history, and. Uh, I knew it. I knew the whole time this is history. I, I, I knew it. And there was a moment when I realized we're in this for a while. And I went out and bought a very beautiful acid-free paper um, journal. And every night I wrote down what happened. And um, I haven't turned it into the archives yet because it seems like the story's not quite over. But I, at some point I'll turn this into the archives and just say – and I'll, 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 I'll lock it away for – 25 years or something. But I knew it was history when it was happening. Wow. Yeah. What are some of the things that Colgate has done to support students, faculty, and staff during the pandemic? Um, everything and not enough is the answer to that. Um, you know, in some ways in the beginning, it was like a wartime footing. It's like, okay, how do we feed, clothe, <laughs> shelter, and take care of the medical needs of, of 3,000 people in a pandemic? And and some of that was just pretty rudimentary. It was how to get them food, how to get the masks. I mean, we were fighting to get PPE. Um, we were fighting to get testing done. Um, but and we we radically increased um, for our students um, counseling services. I mean, that was something that was um, the dean of the college really was pushing on. And we we moved to you know anytime Zoom emergency counseling. So we did that. So in some ways, we did everything and not enough because I could see the students um, – once we couldn't leave our buildings and walk around, I could see how tired they were and how stressed. And the other thing I learned from this was um, we made a decision not to have a fall break and just to have everyone kind of do a long run. And in the spring, it was actually harder because that was a longer run from January through, you know, through the end of the year. And um, it was – Brutal. I mean, it was brutal. They they weren't traveling. They weren't going home. So, I I think we did everything we thought we could, and it sure wasn't enough. I I, I wish I could say, boy, we nailed that. We didn't. It was exhausting. So that's what that's what we did. You made national news when you decided to quarantine alongside our students in West Hall at the start of the fall 2020 semester. <clears throat> Why did you decide to do it? And did the experience have a lasting impact with respect to how you look at residential life at Colgate? And is there anything you would do differently now that you've spent some quality time in Colgate's oldest residence hall? Um, I get asked a lot about why did I go into the uh, West Hall. And I cannot tell you how completely obvious it seemed to me. So I actually got – I was the first person who received the plan from the task force on reopening. And the task force decided we'll bring everybody back, but everyone – after two rounds of cycles of testing, they got tested at home, tested upon arrival. They all had to go to their rooms and be quarantined. And the first year is for 17 days. And uh, they would be allowed out for 90 minutes during the day. It was New York state law. But we were going to put everybody in their rooms for 17 days. And I 
I remember reading it and it just it literally just was like, well, I have to do this. And I like I look back and I think, well, of course you're going to do this. I, I I know it seemed unusual to other folks, and obviously we got a lot of national attention. It's like, what's he doing in West Hall? <laughs> um, but uh, I just seemed like it was a mixture of solidarity and community, and um, it was also a recognition that this is unusual. Uh, so I did, and um, and I here's the thing that surprises everybody. Um, I did get my own bathroom. That was I remember calling when I decided to do it. I said to the dean of the college, "I said I I'm going to get my own bathroom." And then there was a whole which 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 dorm should I move into? And it seemed very clear it had to be it had to be West. Full stop. The oldest dorm, the hottest dorm. I want to point out, but uh, it was surprisingly, um, it, d- d- despite how dark those times were, and it, I just I can't reemphasize how just scary those days were. I mean, we were getting tests every night, but it was strangely joyful um, because I just went all in. I, like, I'm a first year at Colgate University in West Hall. So during outdoor time, I, it was like, I'm outdoors and I, like hanging out with the freshmen and sophomores and, and uh, <laughs> you know, ultimate Frisbee games. And, and then this whole – once you could move about the building a little bit more after you got your second test, you could move around the building a little bit more. The whole culture of who's got food emerged in the building, and um, you technically weren't supposed to go on other floors, but uh, the women on the third floor were totally scoring major <laughs> food from their parents. And so, like, these, like, packs were emerging between the floors about who got food, and um, there was a whole system of communications about sharing food. So in some ways, it was, you know— um, the humor you have in these dark moments, and I was really part of it. And I felt, um, I just felt like I was part of something bigger. And um, I kid a lot about the fact that there was um, there was some sort of acoustical magical thing that happened in West Hall, which is I could hear everything was happening on the floor above me. And there was a group of women. I think they played Taylor Swift nonstop for a week. And I was like, okay. I thought the pandemic was bad, but this is I look, I'm all I'm all for Taylor Swift, but not nonstop. So that was it. But again, I, I I it felt like the thing to do. Now, what would it mean to did I have any sense of what that would wh- how should we change residential life? Um, just a couple things. Uh, it's interesting. I thought that the the students in Gatehouse were having an easier time of it. You'd find this out. The gatehouse, the doors in gatehouse can stay open. Mm. The doors in West Hall automatically close. And I've, I've talked to some folks about this. I think that's isolating. You should be able to keep your doors open because then you can see each other. So, yeah. I mean, it's a little thing. Yeah, yeah. But, but in gatehouse, they can keep their doors open, and they, they become much more of a community. So that's a, it's a little project I'm working on is how do I keep doors openable or, or you know, they remain open. But uh, – um, and I – I really wish West Hall had better water pressure, but that's just something I lived with. Anyway, (laughs) there you go. Colgate saw a dramatic surge in applications last year, about 103% over the year before. And to give a sense of scale, about 17,400 prospective students applied for admission to the class of 2024, compared to about 9,950 that applied for the class of 2023. Is the increase because Colgate is becoming more of a household name? Or is there something else at play? I think there's a number of things at play. Um, first of all, um, we had made a series of changes to admissions uh, 
a few years before the pandemic. We, um, um, we brought on new folks who had really worked in data analysis. We, we, we increased the number of, of uh, admissions counselors. Um, we changed our whole communication strategy. So we, we had done a series of moves that were in place before everything happened. Um, but then three things happened. One was Colgate went test optional, um, as did the Ivies and other elite colleges, just because our students couldn't get, they couldn't sit for these exams. So I think the test optional was a factor, though the fact that Colgate was up by doubling when even the best of schools were showing 20 and 30 percent, we, we doubled. So, so, so it was a factor, but clearly not the driving one. Um, the other was we were on the news a lot. We were on the news a lot. I mean- um, I had one of my nephews is like, Uncle Brian, if I see you on CNN one more time, I'm going to be like mad at the TV. I'm like, thanks, buddy. Um, so we, we we had a lot of news where I think we came across as thoughtful and caring. I and 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 that was that was incredibly powerful. Um, but the third thing was we we took away student debt. We had we had come into pandemic with this was the class applying for the first year under the Colgate commitment where. Um, students coming from families up to $125,000 in income, we're not going to have student loans. And I think that was just a massive driver of interest. Uh, enabled Colgate to say things about accessibility. It made a big difference. And we saw, we saw in, not only in the applications, but who came. Students in that income bracket from $80,000, $125,000, where in prior years we were yielding 5 or 6%. All of a sudden, we yielded 44% of them. So in some ways, um, the large class is a product of students from that income bracket showing up, which is a thrill. Um, it wasn't a thrill to the dean of college to say, instead of 775 students, we have 920. <laughs> whoops. Uh, whoops uh, there you go. Um, so I think those factors all came into play. What's interesting right now is um, it's early in the season, but admissions are also they're up a lot again. So um, we might be, you know, again, it's early in the season, but we might be looking at 20,000 applications, which is alarming. And, and, you know, Gary Ross, everybody knows Gary Ross, head of admissions. He, you know, comes up, his office is literally right below mine. He comes up and he's panicked and he's like, I need help. And I'm like, you know, this is exactly the sort of thing. We will find you help. Like this is one of those moments where people need things. You're like, yes, we will get you what you need. We will find a way to handle um, a lot more applications dutifully and diligently. So. One of the things that Colgate's campus is known for is its beauty. The last time we spoke, we talked about a tree revitalization project uh, in which the university planted 200 mature trees on campus to replace those lost through the years, many due to Dutch elm disease. Now, I understand there will be some major changes coming to Oak Drive, so I'm curious if you can tell us about what's planned. Yeah, um, so... We, in the last two years, um, two of the large oaks on Oak Drive, um, one of them split and one of them sort of topped off. And so we brought an arborist in. Actually, the same people have been helping us plant the campus. Um, Michael Van Volkenberg Associates, they're like the best landscape planning firm in the country. They're doing three of the presidential libraries right now. Oh, wow. So, so They should sponsor this podcast. They should. MVVA coming at you. Um, <laughs> so we had them look at the trees and they said um, – Eight of the large trees in Oak Drive are really in uh, – they're failing. And, and so it, it's very sad. And they, they're, they're 
anywhere from 120 to 140 years old. So I look at these trees and think, you not only saw the bicentennial, but you saw the university's centennial. And uh, so we knew we had they have to come down, which is awful to see. So we, we've developed a long-term plan for the renewal of both Oak Drive and Willow Path. Both of them have trees that are just, you know, in, at, at end of a natural cycle. So, it, you know, the trees are coming down on Oak Drive, the eight of them. Uh, but what we're going to do is we're going to replace them with 21 uh, uh, red oaks. We're going to infill all those places that weren't infilled. And we're also going to extend Oak Drive all the way toward Broad Street. You know, it sort of stops short of it. So it's good, to, it's good to go the whole way. And then there's that little road that goes off yeah. o- off Oak Drive toward uh, Hamilton Street. That will be planted not with oaks but with – because you want to keep uh, biodiversity. Th- th- that will be planted with um, 61 other trees. And wow. yeah, yeah. And uh, all new sidewalks so you can walk into the village. Instead of – you know, everyone sort of scurries along yeah. on Oak Drive <laughs> like I hope, I hope I'm safe. We'll have pathways through there. And then Willow Path because that's a very particular willow. We're going to start propagating our own willows. Willows are actually easy. I've learned this. Uh, easy to propagate. All you have to do is you you literally cut off a branch, you put it in moist soil, and it'll it'll root out. So we're going to create a little nursery of of willows, um, and so that too will be restored. It takes about two to three years to get this all done on both sides. But there's going to be new paths, new lighting, and you know it's funny. Um, I think people know. You've already mentioned. I, I've talked about trees. Uh, you know, Colgate's beautiful, and it's, you you have an obligation to steward that beauty and to take care of it. But I'd also like to think, particularly with Oak Drive, we're not just stewarding it. We're making it bigger. You know, so I, in some ways I view that as a metaphor of what Colgate's doing through its third century plan. It's like not only are we going to take care of things, but we're going to address weaknesses and make it bigger and better. So I'd view it as metaphor, um, and I, it's going to be hard for this campus to watch eight Big oak. That is a hard thing. It's upsetting, mm-hmm. but um, to watch it get replaced and renewed and expanded, I think, will be a moment of I think great hope for the institution. You know, it's kind of a metaphor for its third century. Yeah, so, there you go. It's a great segue into the third century plan. So yes. we're about two years into the implementation of that plan. And uh, I want to ask a few questions about that effort and um, things that folks should be on the lookout for in 2022. So one of the components of the third century plan is a commitment to attracting and supporting outstanding students and faculty. Last year, the university expanded its no loan threshold for families, essentially replacing loans with Colgate grants for students with a combined family income of $150,000. Earlier this year, you launched the Colgate Commitment, which reduces tuition to zero for families with incomes of $80,000 or less. Why was this important, and do you think there's still more to accomplish in this area? Well, um, I think this might be one of the most important things we do. Um, uh, universities are – we just talked about trees, but universities are about the people you attract, and you have to endlessly make the place available to everybody. So you know, we just – we spent um, two years looking at financial aid models. I mean we just looked at every possible model, and so – in addition to saying, how do we keep taking away student loans? So, so uh, that was the first. You know, we as, as we said earlier, and as you just pointed out, we took away, we replaced loans with grants for f- students coming from families up to one hundred twenty-five thousand. We said, okay, we did that for one year, and I, I went across the hall to the CFO. I'm like, well, how do we get this to one hundred fifty? He's like, oh my gosh. So um, <laughs> we modeled that out, and 
Um, that was that was the first component. But then we also wanted to put some stakes in the ground. You know, commitments. Uh, I, I, we, the word commitment actually means something here. The first was for those who can't afford this, up to eighty thousand. We're just not going to charge tuition. And and um, you know, a lot of students below that income, we're, we're getting well supported. But we just wanted to put a line in the sand. We said, here's where tuition does not apply to you, and that was stake number one. Stake number two was. How do we make sure that families from the middle class could afford this place? And we just said we're going we're gonna to tag tuition, what you really pay to your, your income levels. And that, again, it was a commitment. So from 80000 to 125000 you're never going to pay more than 5% of your income is tuition. And in, in some ways, what we've done is we just said we've shifted our business model, right? And so now if we increase tuition, we know that – I'm not getting more funds from those people. Like that, that's not how it's going to happen. Mm. So, um, but what here's, and then from 125 to 150, uh, it's never more than 10%. So, in some ways, those are stakes in the ground. What was really interesting is I started going around once, well, actually, I didn't go around anywhere. I was in in a room on Zoom, (laughs) and we started talking to a group of alums about this. And I said, I want to roll this out with the class of 26. And have it slowly build up as we admit classes under that. The alumni responded so quickly. I mean, I just said, I need a million dollars to launch this. Um, you know, once I get to a million, I can roll this out. It was a matter of days, I, I, like a few days. It was less than a week. We, the money came in because the alumni were just like, that's a good plan. So then we got to send an email out to all the current students that had loans and just said uh, um, that they just got replaced by grants, which is super fun. Another important aspect of the third century plan is a commitment to diversity, equity, and inclusion. It reads, to fulfill the vision for Colgate's third century, Colgate must be a diverse institution that not only brings diverse perspectives, experiences, and backgrounds to campus, but also fosters equity and inclusion. So how has Colgate worked toward this goal in the past two years? You know, um, uh, I like that quote. I think I might have written you it. So I, so, yeah. so, so I, <laughs> I, I, I not, only, not only am I excited about it, but it's incredibly beautifully written. Um, there's two pieces of that. There's two pieces of that, and they're both important. Um, one is you have to bring people from all walks of life. Talent, talent knows no, 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 no group has a monopoly on talent. I mean, that, that, so, and I view Colgate as in being in the battle for talent. And, 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 and if we have policies or practices or a culture that prevents us from attracting talent from any quarter, we've harmed the institution. Full stop. The mission of the university has been diminished if that's the case. So you have to throw things as wide as possible. But then you have to make sure, and it's embedded into this, the notion of diverse perspectives, that people will hear each other. It's, you know, people always talk about let's bring everyone together. And then sometimes I think, particularly in these days and days, these days of, of politicalization and polarization, that people don't always talk to each other. So the trick is to do both, bring people together, have them live together, and have them hear each other. Um, what have we done the last two years? You know, that's such – I mean, I, obviously the Colgate commitment was is a big push to it. But the other thing that happened right before the pandemic was Colgate developed a statement on academic freedom and freedom of expression. And it was sort of – put on pause as much as that could be during a pandemic. But that's the other piece of it. And I view them as being integral to each other. Um, How that will manifest itself, I don't know. I don't know. But I view them as being um, 
really, really, again, integral, connected, and important. So, um, and and both those projects that are related, they don't end. They, they, they don't end. They just, um, you plant your trees and you watch them grow for 140 years. The same thing. Yeah. The third century plan also spells out a need for Colgate to attract, retain, and support outstanding faculty. What is the university now doing in this area? We don't talk about it as much, and we really ought to. We've done a lot for our faculty. We've increased the research funds, the travel funds. And the other thing we did um, by really committing to this in the operating budget, we're now guaranteeing our faculty that before they're up for tenure, they have a year-long sabbatical. And the number of institutions that, that allow for that is like a handful. So I, I, you're catching me on a day in which we are in the heart of faculty hiring season. And our, we are competing with the very best universities in the world for the next Tony Avini, the next Jane Pynchon, the next great scholars that Colgate students are going to talk about forever. But now I know we can go there and say, dear young teacher scholar, you will be paid what you should be paid. You'll be supported the way you should be supported, and you will have time to become a great teacher and a scholar like the very best institutions. So um, it's not as uh, easily communicated as the Colgate commitment, but but a faculty member is here for 50 years. And so right now, as I said, the next great faculty, they're out there and we're hiring them. So, so I, I view both of those as attracting talent as being things that are in place. They're not as visible as a building. But boy, they're important. You know? There's also a bit of a housing crunch in Hamilton. Like many housing markets across the country, it can be difficult for home buyers to find affordable housing stock in the area. What has Colgate done to try to address this concern? Um, it's actually more than a crunch. It's a, it's a, it's a full-on crisis. Um, working with uh, the Partnership for Community Development, which is uh, the village, the township, and the university, we've been together as a triumvirate for a long time. We did a housing study in 2017, 2018, and they, uh, these folks who look at housing markets, look at job markets, look at um, commuting patterns, they came to the conclusion that uh, ha the village of Hamilton was missing anywhere from 100 to 150 do doors. You know, they just say, how many doors do you have? And, and we were short on that, and we could feel it. I mean, you can feel it when we bring in visitors, you bring in new staff members, you bring new coaches. You know, you hire them, and then uh, you know this. You've you've been in the hiring yep. process. Then the next six months are where are they going to live, um, and our housing stock doesn't have the variety of housing that we need. You know, if we hire a young history professor, she doesn't want to move into a five bedroom farmhouse that needs to be rebuilt. That's literally the last <laughs> thing she wants. She's like, I got to write a book, and I got to teach, and I'm exhausted. And so we had not enough housing and the wrong type of housing. And we have the third problem, um, which is a funny thing to say in this podcast. We have alumni who love coming back to this place. And, and we've had a phenomenon of alumni buying up houses. And I can, I can understand the appeal. Who wouldn't want to live in a college town? You, there's, you know, hockey games and speeches and movies and, and um, life and energy and, and coffee shops. So those three things together really created a crisis. So the first thing we did, it was a gift from Dan Hurwitz, a former uh, board of trustee chair who had property that could be zoned into single-family housing. So we put up 24 houses, um, which sold immediately. Um, 
And we sold them at a price, and then, of course, everything became more expensive. So, you know, the university, I assure you, made no money on that one. <laughs> um, and now we need to turn to a rental market because um, coaches, young faculty members, um, we are desperately short of studios, one bedrooms, two bedrooms. So um, that's the next phase is how do we find a way to put rentals in the village? But, um, you know, it's funny. Like I spend a lot of my time my day thinking about things I never thought about when I was getting a PhD in history. Um, but now I work on doors and housing starts. But, um, yeah, we need – but we need not just housing for our folks. Um, the hospital needs housing for nurses. The hospital needs just people – healthcare workers. The school district – one uh, one study showed that of the the teachers in the Hamilton Village School, only one lives in the village, so you can't have that. You just can't have that. So somehow over the next five or six years, and the market is so crazy, yeah. um, we need to we need to create at least another hundred doors, and I think we need to provide for our alumni housing that they need. You know, in some ways, you can just be – you can lament or get angry. Oh, stop buying houses. Well, or you can say, you know, they want they want to come visit. They want to play golf. They want to they want to come to a hockey game. They want to they want to while they're while some who have students here, they want to come and be part of it. So, how do we provide housing for that instead of being mad at them? How do we how do we meet that need? Because why not? Why not have more people here? Colleges and universities have been in the press a lot lately for perceived intolerance to the free expression of ideas. And really, these complaints come from the right and the left, often when campuses invite speakers from one side of the political spectrum or the other, followed by an outcry or a call to cancel the event. How does Colgate manage balancing views on campus? Yeah, we spoke about our, uh, a statement of academic freedom. Mm-hmm. Um, and. You know, people always said, oh, well, Colgate just adopted the principles that the University of Chicago put forth. And um, I happen to be very good friends with the president of the University of Chicago, Bob Zimmer, who – and I always say, well, Colgate produced a far better uh, <laughs> set of principles because it, it, it acknowledged that you have to be a place where all ideas are welcome. But it also demands that you understand you live in a community and civility is required and um, that you have to listen respectfully. Um, and in some ways – you don't want just a bunch of demagogues throwing things around. But I, I will say this, um, and I feel feel both good and exhausted about it. If I look back at the last couple of years pre-pandemic, we welcomed – I'm not going to say names – two very controversial speakers from the right, and we defended their being here. And we had two very controversial speakers from the left, and we defended them being there. And every now and then you have students get upset about it, and you say, the last thing you actually want to do is disinvite that person. The last thing you want is that. What you want to do is get yourself as ready as you can, walk into that, you know, whatever wherever, whatever form, whatever it's an auditorium or classroom, and just throw your best question you can. Just, I mean, that is a far better thing than silencing people. Win. You know, like just win. So um, I do think uh, there's an issue out there. I've, I've read the same surveys that other people that, that have um, – uh, put out that students and faculty sometimes silence themselves, and I so that those data have to be real, and um, you hear it. So, um, but the answer is not simply to say free for all. The answer is to help train students to deal with difference. Um, 
you know, we're, we're an educational institution. And, and when a controversial speaker comes, that's a hard thing to manage when you're 18. And what if they're saying things that are really, really frightening to you as an individual? Well, we have to, okay, how do you deal with that? Because it's going to happen in your life. So, so instead of just saying, hey, it's free speech, go, you have to say, how do we do this? And, and so um, a group of faculty members started this before the pandemic. They're just picking it back up right now. They have these things called speakeasies where they have two faculty members who disagree on some really provocative topic and have them debate um, in front of students. And sometimes it'll be in a, a student lounge. It'll be a, at a house on Broad Street. It'll be in Donovan's pub and have them disagree and have it immediately followed by a meal. Um, if the kids are old enough, ha have a drink afterwards. But I think we have an obligation not to say, hey, free speech is hard. Um, I think we have an obligation to say, well, what happens when someone is coming and saying something really provocative? How do you deal with it? Because mm. um, let me tell you, the world's not doing it well. Uh, so why should we expect uh, an 18-year-old showing up at Colia's campus to be able to do it when half the news shows at night are about people screaming at each other? So they have not learned how to do this. So I think we have an obligation to do it, but I think it's an issue in the country. And uh, um, I also don't know if there's a simple solution. I think it's more of a long-term pedagogical solution. That's how it feels to me. Mm. Yeah. The third section of the third century plan sets forth the roadmap for enriching the student experience at Colgate. And I know there, I know some of those measures related to the residential commons and our student housing have already been put into place. Can you talk for a bit about our overall residential life plans with respect to the commons, new buildings, and planned renovations on Broad Street? Okay. Um, this is going to be a long-term effort um, for a host of reasons. One is residential halls are, are expensive. They're hard to build. Um, the students actually want to live here when they go to school here. So it's very hard. To, you can't just be like, all of you go home. We're going to rebuild everything, come back in three years. So that's it's a complicating – it's like a puzzle. Mm -hmm. So Colgate wants to develop a, a rational, comprehensive four-year residential system. So – We've only just had one class come through four years of the residential common system, which is for first years and sophomores, could you live in a way that you're in a, in a small knit neighborhood of related buildings, that you have faculty members and advisors, and you take classes in, in, this, in this setting, and you have a little sense of community, and a sense of community that's given to everybody. It's not, you didn't win it, you didn't get it because you knew people, you have it, you just arrive and it's yours. Um, so we've had four of them, and some of them make sense. Like the Bryan Complex is sort of feels like one set of buildings, and Curtis and Drake, or some of them think it was KED, that feels rational. But once you get past that, it, that we have commons, but they don't feel geographically rational. Mm -hmm. So um, we are going to build a fifth commons where um, gatehouses, and I, I, I will say this, gatehouse is coming down. We have a gift to replace gatehouse. It's actually, I personally am going to push the building down the hill. It probably won't take much, just a <laughs> real good shove, and that thing's going down the hill right to the golf course. Um, so we will have five smaller communities of a roughly 250 students to 300 um, where you really feel like you belong. And it makes sense uh, geographically. It looks like you belong here, and there's faculty members and you take seminars in this. and So that's for the first years and sophomores. Then we have to, and this is going to be a very complicated process, we have to look at how our juniors and seniors live. And right now, a small number of juniors and seniors 
um, live in communities where they live with people they selected to be with each other, and they can have social life and social spaces. That's for a tiny, tiny percentage of the campus. The rest of the juniors and seniors live in what can only be described as chaos. You either live in apartments that feel a little disconnected or a little run down. Sometimes some students are over in townhouses that are a mile and a half away from the campus. Now, I think they have fun, but you, you're awfully far from a campus. So can we take the lower campus, that whole area over Broad Street? And it's very odd for Colgate people to hear this, but half our students live across Broad Street. A third of our buildings are across Broad Street. Is it can we make that into a campus? Can we replace the apartment buildings that really need to be replaced? Can we replace 113 Broad Street, which really needs to come down? And can we, in the area of Broad Street, make that feel like a campus with real quadrangles, students living near each other? Can we do this? Can we build, can we complete Colgate's campus in a way that every junior and senior has the opportunity to live with people they want to live with? in a space in which they feel comfortable and can have a social life. Instead of saying, wait, only a small number of people have that. Let's take it away from them. Let's invert that. How do we make that, which is desirable for everybody, available to everybody? Um, so right now we're looking at where we could fit new buildings and where we could renovate buildings and where we could take down buildings that were built in the 70s and are really, really ugly. Um, and how do we make Colgate feel like a campus top to bottom. That's going to be an incredibly complex battle. I'm sure it's going to be a very sensitive battle because, you know, there's a lot of history down there. And just how do we do this in a way that doesn't feel like we're taking things away, but giving things, giving that which is desirable and available to some of our students, to everybody. So what what exactly that will be, um, I can't tell you, be, not because I'm withholding, but it, we're, we're, we're looking at what's possible um, we have utility lines and water, and uh, um, we have to get any plans through the village, the township, the state, because it's a state road, FEMA, Army Corps of Engineers. Oh, yeah, everybody in the world. I, you know, I think Joe Biden has to sign off on whatever plans we come <laughs> up with because clearly we have to get this through everybody, but we have good people working on this. Another long-term goal and vision is to invest in the university's Division I athletic program in terms of recruitment, program support, and rejuvenation of some of our older athletics facilities. What is currently on tap? On tap, on, uh, like right on top, on the top of it, we have, we have plans now for the renovation of Reed. And here's the way you think about Reed besides being um, uh, unattractive. Let's just leave, leave with that. You're coming in from the south. You're like, oh, that's interesting. Anyway, um, Reed was the last building built before Colgate went co-ed. So in, it was built for a Colgate that doesn't exist anymore. It was built for um, a much smaller student body, all of whom were men, and, and some of them were arrayed in nine varsity teams. That was what that, – that building was built to serve that Colgate. That Colgate doesn't exist we now have just under 3,000 students, and actually we have more than 3,000 on the campus right now because of the large freshman class, and we have 25 varsity teams, half of which are for women. So, so we have a facility that does not meet those needs. We built a hockey – we didn't build. you know, uh, My predecessors, thank you very much, built a beautiful hockey arena. So now we have a whole half of the building that is just sitting there empty. So the plan right now is to um, – remove the old star rink, the south side of it, 
build a performance arena, like a place you can have basketball and volleyball, a place equivalent to the aspirations we have for those those teams. And then we get to convert Cotterell Court into strength, conditioning, wellness, training space. It'll be beautiful. And then and then um, put so the South will be all brand new, the North will be renovated, but have it um, not only look um, or have it operate as a as a as a leading national division one facility, but also have it look like Colgate. You know, have it have it not be ugly. I mean that's just my, just have it not be ugly. So that's the first thing on tap. Um, I'm having some other folks right now look at how we support our student athletes and um, coaching staffs and um, are there ways in which we can free our coaches? Our coaches right now have enormous obligations to raise money for their own programs. So if you're a coach at Colgate, not only are you expected to somehow pull off being a Division One program in a liberal arts college space, but you're also expected to raise anywhere from a third to half your annual operating budgets. So that that's just unsustainable. So somehow we have to figure out how to fix that. But I think the first thing you'll see is the renovation of Reed. You've made it to question 13. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> All right. So the president's house has always been on campus at Colgate. Mm-hmm. First in Merrill House, where the Office of University Communications now resides, and then in Rab House, up on top of the hill, overlooking the residential and academic quads. And with the construction of new residence halls on the hill in Pynchon and Burke Hall, your house isn't quite as removed from students as it was in the past. So I'm curious, what is it like to live among students on a campus? And um, is it different now that your house is almost in right in the middle of the mix here? Yeah. When when I first uh, started showing up, like they'd hired me, but I hadn't started, I remember thinking, well, I don't want to live in Rob House because it's too removed. It, it was um, – it just felt far away. It was up the hill behind um, a, a deep line of woods. Um, so I was like, well, where else can I live? Where else can I live? And it, there really wasn't an obvious place to move to. So um, I, I brought Cole to Newcastle. I brought the students toward me. So we built the new quad. And I mean, every now and then it gets loud. And I, I, I say to myself, well, you really can't get angry about this because you were the one who put those dorms there. Um, no, it's delightful. It's um, – First of all, it's a beautiful quadrangle. Um, I rarely hear them. And when I hear them, it's usually, um, you know, someone's got a stereo playing out a window or you hear kids playing volleyball. And, and like, if you don't like that you're in, and you're a college president, you're in the wrong business. Um, there was a period during COVID when the students um, were kind of gathering up on the fields up there because they could be outside and they, they really couldn't be having parties. So they were gathering near me. So th- those were a couple interesting evenings where I'm like, could you, could you move away from the house just a little bit? Um, no, it's, it's – for me, it's uh, – I get to look out on Andrews, Burke, and Pynchon. I can see them very clearly. And you can see the change in students' patterns the way the lights work. That, um, first of all, they show up in the fall and all of a sudden the buildings light up. And you're like, oh, they're back. They're back. And then you see when they go away for Thanksgiving break, all of a sudden the buildings go quieter. But you can see, like right now, there's a lot of papers that are due. And um, my particular vantage point at the end of both Burke and Pynchon are the study halls. And so you'll see them late. The other day, I was coming home really late from uh, the airport, just massive delays. So I was coming into, into town at two in the morning and 
I could see lights are on. I'm like, oh, they're having midterms. So, so you, you know, you can hear them and see them. Um, and it's delightful. The other thing that happened during the pandemic that few people know about is that we fixed the bells on the chapel and they now ring on the hour. So every now and then you can look over across the campus and bells are ringing and you can see the lights on the dorms and you think, I get to work here. I get to do this. I won. <laughs> you know, that's how I, you know, like not every day, not every day, but most days I say I'm the luckiest guy in the world. President Casey, thank you so much for joining the show. I'm glad to be here. Thank you. All right. Tell your friends and family about the podcast. In fact, this is the last episode of the year before we go on a short holiday break, but we will be back uh, in January. If you have any questions, feel free to email 13 at colgate.edu. That's 13, the number. And until next year, keep asking questions. 13 is a production of the Colgate University Office of University Communications. Executive Producer, Vice President for Communications, Laura Jack. Audio Engineering by Brian Ness. Logo Art by Catrail Pritz. Research Assistance provided by Colgate sophomore and media relations intern, Marianma Lemon. And I am your host and producer, Dan DeVries. Visit colgatemagazine.com and colgateresearchmagazine.com for more in-depth university news and research stories.